0: Hello, welcome to Reverb. Today we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Britt Paris, an assistant professor in the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers University and an affiliate with the nonprofit research institute Data and Society. Dr. Paris studies how groups build, use, and understand information systems according to their values and how these systems influence evidentiary standards and policy actions. She has published work on internet infrastructure projects, digital labor, and civic data analyzed through the lens of critical, feminist, and decolonial theory. Last year, she and Joan Donovan published the critical report, Deep Fakes and Cheap Fakes, the Manipulation of Audio and Visual Evidence through Data and Society. Dr. Britt Paris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi. Happy to be here. It's so nice to talk to you. Can you start us off by telling us a little bit about, just introduce us to your work and maybe how you came to study in this area or what, what drew you to this particular field?
1: So I guess my background is one that is very interested in power um, and how structural power sort of operates through various institutions within our society. So Sort of academically, I first got an undergraduate degree in journalism and then graduated into the recession, so we can see how well that journalism degree worked out. And then, you know, I became interested I went back to school for media studies, which is very much sort of focused in this razor sharp way on the way that power sort of, you know, proliferates through, you know, social structures. And at the time I was getting my media studies degree, you know, mid-2000s, 2010-ish, the institution that was, you know, really becoming so apparent as like a, you know, huge arbiter of the way that society is structured is that of the tech industry. So yeah, my work really focuses on, you know, these questions of how technology and specifically data-driven technology is developed, deployed, and used within these larger systems of structural power. So I guess that's the short answer, even though it was quite long.
2: <laughs> no, that's awesome. Britt, I-, I wanted to know if you could just define critical data studies for us, because I know that's a, a big term that comes up a lot in your work. And I think that a lot of people tend to think of data as this like really straightforward thing that like you look at the data and it tells you everything you need to know, but obviously, uh, I would assume a critical data studies approach to that questions that narrative. And so how does it reshape like both, maybe how publics would think about data, but also how certain academic fields have used and talked about data in the past?
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, you're exactly right that, you know, when most people think about data, you know, certainly historically, I think people are becoming a little more attuned to, uh, you know, the, the sort of problems and promise of data these days. But, you know, historically, you know, we look at data and we think quantitative data. These are numbers, you know, they're viewed as impartial. It's sort of neutral accounting of the world as it actually is, right? That's sort of the conception of it. And then, you know, people think in different fields, like if we have perfect data, it can be used to drive all sorts of decision-making. And this decision-making, you know, this data-driven decision-making would be not only faster than, you know, actual deliberation with, you know, all of the stakeholders involved, but also more impartial. So we can make these perfect decisions based on this sort of idea or ideal of perfect data. But within the field of critical data studies, We really look at data as a process of construction. So, you know, like I was talking about earlier, this notion of the process of development, deployment and use is very much sort of this process that we look at that has, you know, all sorts of different parameters based on the types of data you're looking at and the types of practices you're trying to quantify, I suppose. But, you know, are choices made at every step of data production, you know, what is and what isn't considered data collection, who is allowed to collect data, what methods they use, how this data is classified, structured, and stored, and then how it's made available to people, as well as how people then, you know, use that data to do things in their lives, right? And, you know, historically... A lot of official data sets use very strange, or not strange, but let's say inequitable processes to sort of shape the way data is designed, deployed, and used. So I came to this field of study because, you know, like I was saying earlier, all of my thinking is really motivated by, you know, situating the way that, you know, Society functions with regard to structural power and how that shapes discourse, institutions, consensus, etc. You know, I think it's easy for a lot of us to see, I think, given now with all of the debacles with social media and the sort of procession of failures with data driven technologies and algorithmic technologies that have been sort of adopted without much deliberation into the public sphere. I mean, There are tons of examples of those. And I think people are becoming more aware of like, you know, this notion of data as a process and that a big term that gets thrown around a lot is, you know, the biases that are sort of thrown into these data-driven decision-making processes by using certain types of data. But, you know, within the field of critical data studies, we think of data, you know, there's never raw data. Data is always cooked, right? So, you know, it's a result of various processes. And, you know, within critical data studies, there's this notion that as data is cooked, we should think about ways to cook it with care, drawing from mm-hmm. Jeff Backer, That's, uh, you know, I didn't make that up. That's something from, <laughs> you know, sort of luminary in the field of critical data studies. So yeah, when designing and deploying technology, I think this notion of the public good often, you know, comes second to market incentives. And so Overall, I think, you know, this perspective, critical data studies, uh, among others, are really crucial in first understanding how we've come to this place where tech seems to be poisoning society to take, you know, more sort of a more a broader and more historical view. And second, to help us think clearly about, you know, based on the history of, you know, these processes, what kind of future, what kind of socio-technical future do we want? And so once we have some ideas around The type of future that we want and what policies might help us get there, we can think about how to enact policy in various realms, uh, you know, formal and informal, right? I'd say policy very loosely to try to enact this better socio-technical future. I vacillate, you know, on days in, (laughs) to be honest and thinking, you know, how possible this is, but I really see no other option than to, you know, try to try my best to bring it into, into practice.
3: That's fantastic. Thank you. I was really fascinated in both your response right there, as well as in a large part of the research report that I think we want to talk about in just a moment here. But I I just wanted to insert a really quick question about that notion you said of, you know, historically data has kind of had this, it, it plays a much larger role in the sort of historical trajectory of how we think about evidence and how that is connected to power, right? So I'm kind of connecting the dots here between who has historically, I guess, had the right to label something as evidentiary and impartial evidence, right? So I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little a little bit broader sense of, you know, what is the historical context that we should be, that we should keep in mind for thinking about data as evidence and that uh, it's intersection with power in various institutions in our lives?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what types of, of data and evidence you're looking at. There are, you know, many, many examples. That, and you know, most of the time you can think of one sort of bespoke example, that can sort of help you think through a number of things that are related to, you know, whatever sort of data quandary you may have. You know, I think people have a hard time thinking about history and power relations around evidence because it's not part of educational curriculum, to be honest. That's there for reasons. We could talk long about that. But, um, you know, when thinking about evidence you really, you know, you're absolutely correct. You have to think about, you know, who has the, who has the power to determine what evidence is, and importantly, to sort of think about who evidence is used against, or, you know, what types of things evidence is used to uphold. And within our legal system, you know, just at a very, you know, very, very basic example, our legal system is made to uphold the rights of property owners and the status quo. So, you know, I think, a lot of the time people don't really think about that and that, you know, justice is something that we talk about within our legal system. And, you know, the ways even I wrote about in that report, the ways that even visual evidence was introduced into the court, again, was a process. Like you don't introduce visual evidence into the court and it's automatically accepted. You know, there are experts that have to come in and sort of Corroborate this evidence, explain how it works, et cetera. Historically, there's less of that now, you know, and we could talk a lot about the ways that all types of evidence, you know, visual evidence, not visual evidence, DNA evidence is, you know, introduced into courts under sort of some very slippery pretenses, right? And it's because, you know, our legal system, again, is predicated on the rights of property owners and upholding the status quo and any sort of levers that you can use any sort of sort of evidentiary claims you can use to uphold that unfortunately gets sort of injected into legal discourse
3: that was really great that you gave us some because those were the kinds of examples that i that i was thinking of through your report was you know naming these kind of specific institutional arms of power like the courts and how different kinds of what we would consider you know factual data and evidence get elevated to that status of, tr- uh, of, you know, the truth. And I think that what your answer really illuminates is that being able to render certain kinds of evidence as truthful or as having truth value often requires power. Uh, it, it does require some actual material leverage or advantage to either have access to being able to call yourself, you know, an expert and, and sort of Bestow upon the, these data and pieces of evidence with your expertise that, you know, the, the idea that these are truthful. Yeah, I really appreciated that answer. I'll yeah, start and talking.
1: like the course, that's one example, but, you know, this proliferates through all, you know, institutions of, you know, uh, weighing in on evidence from the academy to journalism to, you know, even museums.
2: Well, I think too that, like, these kind of standards that get promoted by dominant institutions then filtered down to how we talk about stuff, for example, on social media. So like the idea that visual evidence is bulletproof or should be, I think comes up a lot in the context of deep fakes and cheap fakes, right? So this could maybe be a good place to transition into talking to you about the report you wrote co-wrote on deep fakes and cheap fakes. So I guess just generally... Can you help our our listeners, maybe people who aren't as familiar with these terms or sort of generally remember controversies around this but need a refresher, like what is the difference between a deep fake and a cheap fake? Why did this sort of produce such a stir in the media like just like for justifiable reasons? And then what is the kind of more critical perspective that your report takes on it that helps us to think about some of the inherently problematic aspects of visual evidence
1: yeah so in our report we create this whole text taxonomy or the spectrum of audiovisual manipulation um we also sort of contextualize this historically as i was just mentioning before my previous answer maybe you can link i don't know if you can link to this spectrum it might help people yeah we they, definitely uh, will absolutely uh, you know, yeah, sort we'll of put think that in through this, this but on one end of the spectrum, there are deep fakes, and these deep fakes are generated through sophisticated machine learning models that require a lot of stuff, right? Large moving image data sets, as well as expertise within computer science, as well as these machine learning models that uh, categorize and read and are, you know, mapped these, you know, large moving image data sets onto existing video. Uh, it It also takes large amounts of computational resources, so, you know, actual memory. So there are many examples of these coming from research universities. Major motion picture studios have sort of had this capacity for a long time. There are a couple examples that we talk about in the report, one of which was made at the University of Washington and it was called Synthesizing Obama, where they made you know quite a realistic video of Barack Obama that was based on the virtual performances of a model, kind of like you know CGI motion capture. You can think of all of those examples. but it was something that was developed in a lab and you know uh, theoretically would be made available to a broader group of people. To experiment with as it would, you know, make its way into the public sphere. And on the other end of this spectrum that we sort of found through many instances are cheap fakes. And these cheat fakes are the ones that you're most familiar with, right? They can be as simple as finding an existing video and recontextualizing it by, you know, changing the speed of the video and key points or by simply, you know, adding text to a recontextualized video that was taken at one point in time to argue that it happened in a different point in time. An example of these cheap fakes, a really good example, Uh, it's kind of an older example now. I'm sure many of you can think of any example that you've seen on social media lately of uh, you know just a very basic faked or recontextualized video. But an example I like to bring up in this case is that Jim Acosta, CNN's Jim Acosta, that video distributed by Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders in 2018 that sped up Acosta's motion as he recovered the mic from the White House intern that she was attempting to grab it from him as he asked questions in a press conference. So component of that video from the C-SPAN footage was sped up and then reinserted back into the C-SPAN video stream and, you know, clipped to make a video that would be easily shareable on social media. And this was disseminated in an attempt to frame Acosta's actions as something that was you know tandem to assault or to justify the revocation of his press pass. So this um, revocation of his press pass ended up not going anywhere thanks to the ACLU and you know Acosta's press pass was restored but nonetheless we see that these types of cheat fakes are present you know they're far more common you can probably think of 10 examples you've seen in the last week And I think the Acosta example shows that, you know, these cheap fakes are far more likely to cause, you know, real political problems. And so far with deep fakes, we haven't seen, you know, anything yet that has caused, you know, the same amount of political upset as the Jim Acosta, you know, cheap fake video. Why Um, do you think that
0: that one was so, like, why do you think that grabbed people's attention more, more so than other examples?
1: I mean, with the the cost of video, it sort of reifies a worldview of, without getting too much into the weeds on this, it reifies a sort of pre-existing belief of, uh, you know, people who you know, are on the internet and want to sort of share this information as evidence of, you know, something that reifies their world belief and whether or not, you know, it actually stands in as, you know, truth, they may know it's something that's false, but it sort of is in sync with the way that they view the world, you know, they may believe already that, you know, the lion fake news media is out to destroy democracy or destroy the good name of, uh, you know, those in power. And this is just, you know, an example of this that you can pass around to your friends and get a good laugh out of it or, you know, sort of prove something to your enemies, right? Or prove something to people who don't agree with you. So it's, I think on one hand, you know, a sort of very juicy example. It's uh, the stakes are there and the stakes are sort of explicit in, in the video and the sharing of it. I think maybe that's the reason why, I mean, I can't pretend to know you know, what people's motivations are for sharing something, but, you know, historically studies have shown that, you know, what I just explained sort of gets at it. And then, you know, there's also the thing that we can't discount in social media is that, you know, inflammatory novel or, you know, in some ways sort of salacious content travels more quickly uh, and at larger scales than, you know, true content because of all the things I just mentioned. Um, And also because there are, you know, metrics that are built into the social media platforms that are, you know, inherently advertising platforms. So they're predicated on things going viral that makes money for the platform owners.
2: Yeah, it, that example makes me think a lot about how this spectrum is really interesting because deepfakes, it seems like, are the most sort of technically, theoretically concerning from the perspective of like unsettling our ability to distinguish like justifiable pieces of evidence from non-justifiable. And I, I realize that's a problematic use of those modifiers, but but it's interesting that there have been so few examples yet. Do you think, like, the reason for that is just that it requires so much technical power and, like, for whatever reason, the institutions that have that kind of technical capability have not exploited it yet? Is And do you see that as a threat in the future? And how do we avoid that? Because it, it seems like with the cheap fakes, at least, it will kind of... Be like a polarized reaction to treating it as valid evidence, right? But with deep fakes, you have to worry about uh, intelligence agencies or powerful tech companies that that have sway across political spectrums using some of these techniques, you know, in ways that are even more deleterious. Not to like minimize the the bad effects of cheap fakes, but I'm just wondering what you think about like that the potential risks of deepfakes and why they haven't really come to fruition yet and what we can do to prevent them?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a plethora of technical solutions that are being put forward every day, uh, you know, new startups popping up every day to detect deepfakes, right? And I know that various social media companies have adopted some of these because, you know, it's fairly easy to detect, like when pixels are out of line, you know, these deep fakes are relatively easy to detect with technical means. And so, you know, that may be one reason why we haven't seen as many deep fakes. But, you know, I really do think it's the fact that these uh, deep fakes are incredibly difficult and re- resource intensive to make. That being said, you know, a lot of these are made with generative adversarial networks. So, A lot of people argue that it's only a matter of time until, you know, these technical methods of detection are obsolete and, you know, we have uh, sort of uh, deepfakes that can circumvent these detection algorithms and cause more problems and things like that. I will say also there has been legislation enacted and passed in a couple of states against deepfakes mainly around tort law type of thing which i think you know can be a sort of mild deterrent for individuals or institutions trying to who might be interested in doing this one of the big problems i see though is a lot of these technical solutions or a lot of these uh, organizations sort of pushing technical solutions are predicated on developing a database of you know all sorts of existent images videos etc and that's kind of what worries me in terms of, you know, once they warehouse all of this visual data, then, you know, they have the corner on the market, right, in some senses. And we we know that the market is important to these people or these organizations. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to say in what ways they will, you know, exploit that resource for further marketing, you know, market advantages. So, <laughs> I would like to paint a rosier picture um, but unfortunately you know we don't have a lot of insight into the ways that Silicon Valley operates and again that's by design on their part not on ours you know I think based on you know what I've heard and what I've seen that seems to be true but I do want to highlight that like the things that everybody worries about with deep fakes like you know tampering with elections or causing widespread panic and violence or ruining people's reputations. Like that type of thing has been around for a long time with cheap fakes Mm -hmm. and has proven completely intractable to these social media companies because they're not technically like there's no technical detection mechanism that you can use to find these and kick them out of the, you know, social media data set, so to speak, uh, that people are exposed
2: to. And these companies don't really take content moderation as seriously as they should.
1: Oh, they really don't. And the biggest problem to me is uh, with their content moderation is, you know, it's really a labor problem, right? Like They don't want to pay people to, you know, who are the vanguard of their brand, so to speak, to, you know, maintain their brand because they don't have to. They have monopolies so over this type of interaction that we now, since coronavirus, are all sort of uh, forced on, you know, it's forced <laughs> upon us, so...
3: Not to uh, continue to paint a uh, paint with a bleak brush here, but uh, but I did want to talk about our favorite one kind of, the, of brush. Uh, yeah, that's 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 the kind of brush we deal with most of the time on this show. Uh, but oh, but well, I think it's, I guess it's, I'm in
1: good company. Exactly.
3: <laughs> no, I think it's I think you're, yes, you're definitely in good company, and I think it's necessary for a lot of especially a, one of the more provocative examples that I zoned in on when I was reading through your report on on deepfakes and cheapfakes was the use of not only uh, this technology by, you know, experts, image manipulators, but the sort of increasing seepage of this like technical expertise into more and more pr- what were previously like non-expert domains, and that particularly redounds to, uh, you kind of alluded to it earlier in uh, the use of deepfakes to ruin people's reputations, doing the sort of uh, face swap mechanism of, you know, for example, uh, the well-known one of uh, Gal Gadot's face being put onto uh, that of a pornographic actress and deepfaked uh, for a video... I just wanted to quote in brief from somebody who uh, you actually clipped a quote from the person, the anonymous creator of the Gal Gadot video in an interview with Motherboard said, uh, quote, Every technology can be used with bad motivations, and it's impossible to stop that. The main difference is how easy it is to do that by everyone. I don't think it's a bad thing for more average people to engage in machine learning research. And then another redditor, repo, or another redditor posted, "Quote: The work that we create here in this community is not with malicious intent. Quite the opposite. We are painting with revolutionary, experimental technology, one that could quite possibly shape the future of media and creative design." So, I mean, obviously, treating that quote, those quotes, with a, a fairly critical lens. I was wondering what your thoughts are on how we should be how we should be thinking about deepfakes in this context of. The increasing, I guess, democratization of technical knowledge and and tools for, uh, I, I don't even know if I would want to call it democratization necessarily, but in the sort of Walter Benjamin sense, right? More people are sort of getting access to these means of, of artistic and creative, if you want to call it that, production. So I guess, how should we be thinking about not only the sort of institutional levers that are allowing for this, but also the ways that social problems like misogyny and and things like that are being reinforced through these technologies.
1: Right. Yeah. And this is a big part of what, you know, sort of motivated this report is that, you know, thinking again about history. You know, you can even think back to the beginning of, you know, the use of the Internet, uh, you know, the graphical user interface of the Internet and using, you know, the first time that graphics were allowed into, you know, chat rooms or, you know, these sort of nascent email technologies. A lot of what was shared was, you know, pornographic images of people's harassing images of, you know, people who they wanted to sort of exclude from these chat rooms or exclude from the email threads or whatever, um, especially if these people were identifying as something other than, you know, assist gendered you know white man who was you know seen as sort of someone who belonged in this space and you know everyone else sort of didn't belong and would be harassed out and the main you know one of the main tactics by which this happened was the use of image manipulation technology as photoshop you know gained prominence and became more you know quote-unquote democratized or more widely available you know in conjunction with more people having internet like Women, LGBTQ individuals, and people of color were predominantly, there were images, uh, you know, depicting all sorts of, you know, pornographic and, you know, sort of hateful visual depictions of of these people. These people were targeted with that sort of image-based harassment. So, you know, we see this coming (laughs) coming through, you know, in a pretty direct thread to today, right? The first instance of deep fake technology that was wielded sort of in the realm of the public or the non-expert hands was, you know, pornography and pornography of women in Hollywood, right? And, you know, while it can, you know, ruin, you know, the Gal Gadot example sort of trained our view on, you know, this problem of deepfakes and the fact that These very expensive and, you know, resource intensive image manipulation technologies were sort of jumping out into the public sphere through the use of GitHub algorithms that could be sort of not super easily worked with, but, um, you know, more easily sort of managed and manipulated than those, you know, very sophisticated machine learning models. And yeah, so we see, you know, exactly what happens, like, this is a straight trajectory from the past in terms of the ways in which, you know, image-based harassment is used against women, LGBTQ individuals, people of color, as well as those questioning power. And so, you know, With people who are famous in these examples or politicians or, you know, instances that might, you know, coalesce around the political process or elections, these, you know, are easily litigated and have, you know, a lot of attention trained to them. But, you know, people with fewer economic resources, you know, less time, et cetera, have, you know, less ability to take these tort cases to court in order to, to combat the damage that, of these image-based harassment campaigns. And so, you know, all of the examples that we've seen with deepfakes thus far, the ones that, you know, journalists have covered and, you know, people talk about are ones that, you know, are relatively easily litigated or, you know, have some sort of watermark on them to, you know, show that they were never, you know, made to be taken as true or you know to have any sort of truth content it also is possible and you know deep fakes are being made of you know people who just exist on the internet Deepfakes fakes can now be made with just a few images of people that exist online and these aren't you know completely believable deep fakes these aren't ones that anyone would necessarily believe if you saw them but you know the sort of truth content of the video in some cases doesn't matter, especially if you're not, or it doesn't matter in terms of like exonerating a person, you know, depicted in some, you know, lewd or inappropriate way, you know, whatever.
0: I guess I just sort of have sort of a layman's question about how we as just sort of casual individual internet users are helping to advance this kind of technology because I, obviously this would be on the cheap fake spectrum, but like there are just apps in, like Instagram and I'm assuming Snapchat that like execute cheap fakes immediately, right? Just, just for fun or whatever, you know, people swapping faces with whatever, or inserting themselves into music videos and stuff like that. And my sense is always with anything, any kind of like face capture technology that people are using with apps, like for fun, that, that, like we're doing that work for free for the companies that are developing this technology. Is that, is that accurate? Can you confirm that? And like, what do you think is like the role of the public in advancing this technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the main tactics of these Silicon Valley operations. They may be, you know, affiliated with the social media giants. They may be, you know, sort of tangential to them. But the whole point is growing out their face recognition data set and algorithms for detecting faces, right? Because this data can be incredibly useful, unfortunately. uh, It's widely used in, you know, law enforcement and all sorts of other types of, you know, surveillance activities that, you know, military activities that are very lucrative to participate in, very lucrative to partner with for these tech companies. And even that, you know, that partnership has a long history as well. So yeah, like I was saying before, you know, there are some sort of apps that automate a lot of the machine learning work that would have to be done to make a deep fake um, and these apps can use, you know, just a few hundred or, you know, in some cases like under 100 videos or, or images of a person. That exists online through their social media profile that are, you know, 100% easily scraped. And so I always say like we need to think a little bit more critically about the ways that we engage with technology and engage with one another and this in and of itself, like I know it's sort of a tall order because these are sort of the only opportunities that seem to exist for us to do a lot of the things that we want to do, right? Especially now in COVID. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, in terms of image-based manipulation or, you know, audio-visual misinformation and things like that, I think you should be very thoughtful and critical about what types of images of yourself and your loved ones you put online um, because those are available to anyone. A lot of these deep fake apps that use, you know, social media data sets that are, you know, easily scraped are not, you know, very sophisticated, but uh, I would imagine that it's only a matter of time before they are. So I I would say be careful, you know, Sophie knows me, I'm not a person that's very much on social media. (laughs) Um, And, you know, that's for a long time I I felt like it was, you know, that's sort of a personal choice and you know, I don't want to sort of, you know, support these these companies that are, you know, set up to, you know, betray, betray the public and, you know, corrode the public good and things like that. But I feel like more and more these days, you know, this is something that people should be thinking about a little
0: a little more thoroughly. Yeah. Like you point out, it is hard when, like, increasingly interaction happens in a digital realm to decide to opt out of all those platforms that are, that exist to, like, facilitate interaction, whether or not that's actually what they do is a, it's a tricky thing to navigate.
1: Yeah, and one thing I always say is, like, just because this is a socio-technical world we have doesn't mean that's the one that we have to put up with, right? Like, there are things that we can do. There are alternate platforms, you know we communicated for a long time without the, the use of social media, even in pandemics. <laughs> yep. But, you know, at the same time, I do appreciate and sympathize with the fact that, you know, for a lot of people, simply getting off social media or simply, you know, changing uh, the platforms by which you disseminate important messages is not, you know, it's it's a big ask.
2: Yeah. I, I think that gets at uh, the limitation of sort of individual action when it comes to a lot of these problems. And I think to maybe steer us in a slightly less bleak direction, one of the really inspiring aspects of some of your published work are these instances of what you call counter data action. So these are more grassroots organizations who are using data, either questioning existing data sets creating new data sets in a way that that unsettles the sort of power advantage that large and powerful institutions have over the data that controls our lives. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you think about counter data and some of these examples.
1: Yeah, Um, and I I also sort of want to bridge this point and the point, you know, the talking points that uh, Sophie just had, you Um. know, Even though, you know, it can be very difficult for us as individuals to sort of, you know, abstain from social media, it would be very simple for a lot of large institutions to abstain from social media or Uh to, you know, sort of back off from the ways in which they leverage social media and allow social media to monopolize the ways in which we communicate. If they, you know, were able to, or if they were interested in, let's be honest, if they were interested in promoting the public good, they might think about targeting their messages in different ways across different platforms and things like that. So, you know, so that social media wouldn't have such a monopoly over, you know, all of our communication modes. You know, I'm thinking, for example, like schools, they have numerous opportunities to use other types of, you know, communication media, but they a lot of the time do not choose to use them. So in terms of counter data action, I want to I wanna highlight also that counter data action is a term that we derived in our papers from critical geographers who've been doing this type of work for a long time. Jim Dalton and Craig Thatcher originated this term, counter data action, and it really originates from sort of counter mapping activities that have been around for a long time where Historically, mapping has been an enormous tool of power and influence over marginalized and minoritized communities. And when I use, you know, marginalized and minoritized communities, I'm talking about the ways in which structural power puts certain groups of people in these vulnerable positions to maintain that system of power. And so within, you know, geography and critical geography circles, these critical geographers would bring groups of people together to redraw boundaries specifically for you know indigenous communities to redraw boundaries around what were their historical lands and how does this map you know sort of not make sense or not sort of gel with these official maps that you know the state uses to determine whose resources are whose and and whatnot as an act of not necessarily reparation or repatriation, but um, in, you know, particular legal examples where Indigenous groups were suing for increased rights over historical lands. Dalton and Thatcher suggest that, you know, this type of method might be used in countering uh, the narratives that were supported by official data sets. So, We looked, uh, we sort of um, thought about this term as we looked uh, at how community groups in Los Angeles collect their own qualitative data to combat narratives justifying police violence, official narratives, you know, data-driven narratives and scare quotes justifying police violence. And in these cases, there are a couple of really great groups in Los Angeles doing, you know, wonderful work in this area, one of which is the Youth Justice Coalition, the other one is the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, who both do great work to dismantle policing in Los Angeles. But both of these groups engage in collecting stories from communities around events where police kill, harass, brutalize members of their community As well as, you know, performing, you know, wonderful sort of primary research, collecting information from the community about how their lives are impacted by predatory policing technology. And this work is really useful, I think, um, because it combats this official data on police brutality and murder of community members that... Exists, You know, it's collected. This official data is collected by police officers themselves. Law enforcement agencies are not required to report this information. And when it is reported, we found a lot of the time it's incomplete, you know, it's not filled out appropriately. There's a lot of, you know, just weird issues with data collection. And more importantly, this information is publicly available. Um, And a lot of the time, you know, local decision makers say to these community groups, oh, why don't you just, you know, look at the, you know, supplementary homicide report developed, which is put out by the FBI for, you know, to try to give us some data to justify dismantling policing. Well, this data that they point them to it's publicly available, but it's a complete mess. It's not easy to parse. It's impossible to access in a lot of cases. Even if you do have sort of sophisticated technical training, it can be very difficult to make any sort of argument based on this official data. Yet this data is used to, you know, justify doing nothing to change the, the status quo of, you know, predatory policing. And then we engage in a different sort of different type of counter data action that Focused on collecting, storing, and disseminating environmental climate change and environmental justice data in 2016, specifically in December of 2016 and into, uh, you know, May of 2017 as an administration that was, you know, openly hostile to climate change came into power. And with that sort of counter data action, it was interesting because there was a different set of concerns around, you know, this data, right? People wanted to save it. This data was actually useful to, you know, scientists, public health officials, community groups to, you know, make arguments around, you know, these these very important issues, environmental justice and climate change. And they wanted to ensure that this research could continue even as the administration sort of, you know, quote unquote, disappeared information, uh, disappeared data sets by, you know, defunding this research, defunding, you know, data curation and upkeep. And so, you know, these counter data actions sort of cropped up all over the United States, and they elected data that was useful to them, you know, in the, the work that they did to be crawled and scraped, and then they created a decentralized database um, housing the data. So, you know, that's another way that we can think about counter data action or sort of collective action around data to bring around, you know, bring about a future that is more more in tune with something that we want to see, right? And even though, you know, there are a lot of problems around it and, you know, data won't save us, it can be. In some cases, you know, this uh, work that we did with the environmental justice data and environmental data sort of shows us that it can be in some cases a useful tool to combat power whenever people engage collectively around these data sets. The environmental data stuff that we did shows that, you know, there are ways to combat these harmful practices of the status quo, and different ways to think about, you know, collaborating and, you know, collectivizing around the types of technological features that we want. And really, you know, we it gives an opening. I think it really showed us an opening to think critically in a, in a sort of larger scale about what counts as data, how that data can inform policy. Who, you know, is included and give us some ideas to, you know, improve in terms of how we create venues for collaboration and, you know, collective action around these, uh, you know, data driven issues and i think you know especially it helped us understand better about how to create venues for meaningful engagement in some ways for the groups that are most affected by technological and scientific practice
3: I think one of the uh, one of the other really revelatory concepts that that came up in that article that you uh, that you co published on the counter data actions involving officer involved homicides in uh, L.A. County was this concept of data assemblages. So I just wanted to to kind of get your take on what's an understanding of how data are as you said before you know developed deployed and used i think were the three the three sort of component processes there in your article you you quote a uh, kitchen is the scholar here saying that data assemblages are the technological political social and economic apparatuses that that frame data's uh, nature operation and work And when I read through this part, I was thinking a lot about examples that I'd run across in the past. One of the most notorious being there's this one interview with Steven Pinker, who uh, is kind of a notorious, uh, I'm going to editorialize a little bit and call him a data fetishist, because he likes to kind of throw around data a lot, you know, without kind of questioning where it comes from. Made some comments at a uh, forum where he was talking about how the alt right gets radicalized, and was saying that it's because they run across these these incontrovertible facts uh, in the form of statistics about sex-based differences in job preferences. Uh, you know, we can look at data and see that men and women prefer different career options, as well as the fact, uh, as he said, that ethnic different ethnic groups commit crimes at different rates so then citing Bureau of Labor just or Bureau, Bureau of Justice statistics about how uh, about how African- American people commit crimes at higher rates than quote European American people
4: so here is a, um, a fact that's going to sound ragingly controversial but is not and that is that um, capitalist societies are better than communist ones okay so if you, if you doubt it then just uh, ask yourself the question: Would I rather live in South Korea or North Korea? Uh, would I rather live in West Germany in the 1970s or East Germany or in the 1960s? So th- this is not—I uh, I submit that this is actually not a controversial statement—but in university campuses, it is considered would be considered flamingly radical. Number two, uh, here's another one. Men and women are, uh, are not identical in their life priorities, in their sexuality, uh, in, their, uh, in their tastes and interests. Again, this is not controversial to anyone who is even glanced at the data the kind of vocational interest tests of the kind that your high school guidance counselor gave you been given to millions of people and men and women give different answers as to what they want to do for a living and how much time they want to allocate to family versus uh, career and so on but you kind of you can't say it here's a, uh, a, a third fact that is just not controversial, although it sounds controversial, and that is that different ethnic groups commit uh, violent crimes at different rates. You can go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, look it up on their website. The uh, homicide rate among African Americans is about seven or eight times higher than it is among European Americans. And uh, terrorism, go to the Global Terrorist Database and you find that uh, worldwide the overwhelming majority of suicide terrorist acts are are committed by Islamist uh, extremist groups.
3: And I think that that one of the, to me at least, data assemblages stuck out as this kind of concept that would really help us better contextualize those examples, especially with the example of crime statistics, which are, of course, inherently influenced by The fact that their collection is predicated upon the institution of policing, which is inherently biased in a number of different ways. So I was just kind of wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what data assemblages are and how we can use those or an understanding of them to kind of better contextualize some of these data that get presented to us as incontrovertible fact, but are in fact cooked, as you said before.
1: Yeah, I think data symbol disease, that sort of concept is very useful and provocative. When we, you know, it's a sort of method in some ways for thinking through the ways in which, you know, structural power like has its fingers and all of these, you know, in the construction of these data sets as we look at, you know, what are the institutions that either pay for the collection of this data, pay for its upkeep or benefit in some ways from this data data being collected. Um, You know, a great example you just gave with the Bureau of Justice Statistics, as well as, you know, the FBI's SHR supplementary homicide report that I just mentioned, right? Like, it is exactly that. Police officers are not required to, whenever they're compelled to report, it is often uh, reported by the partner of the officer, the offending officer, and you know not every law enforcement jurisdiction even not every state is uh, re- you know required to report and as we know with the FBI like they l- work very closely in tandem with you know local policing agencies you know we can think about the ways in which the data is so that you know sort of handles collection right and the funding of collection is sort of a political and ideological motivations behind, you know, even collecting this data in the first place, you know, sort of leads to, let's say, a bias or, you know, uh, toward, you know, a certain outcome, right? The way it's stored, I think the way it's stored in a lot of cases is really important. Not so much with the Steven Pinker example. I'm not, I'm not as familiar with that example or, you know, all the sort of data that he used or the data assemblages there, but, you know, you can think very clearly about how, how is the data stored and what, what leeway there is for manipulation, again, by these, you know, organizations that benefit from the data's collection and the data being public. And then, you know, the use of it really it depends on um, the way this data is made accessible and the way that people are guided to certain arguments around the data. The way that this data is classified and made accessible to people, you know, is an argument when, you know, in and of itself uh, that is, uh, again, shaped by those interested parties. Yeah, the, the you know, that's just a sort of a very generalized example of how the data is cooked and how, you know, we saw in the Officer-involved homicide data project that we did, you know, these were very much, that's what we
0: saw. Well, I wonder, do you think, I mean, this is just asking for your take, but this, I, this idea of there being any such incontrovertible data or evidence, because it kind of seems, I would, I would say increasingly, I don't know if it has really changed that much, and a lot of your work seems to just suggest that this is an ongoing thing that's not really new but like is there any such thing as incontrovertible evidence or is it just it confirms what i thought anyway and that's what makes it incontrovertible because that seems like there's any any number of situations i can think of in the past few weeks and months where like it seems pretty clear that this is what's happening but obviously that's like no amount of evidence seems to be enough to prove a case that somebody has decided not to agree with anyway so i just wonder if if the if the notion of hard incontrovertible evidence is even is that like a fairy tale you know what I mean like- well
1: I mean there's
0: yes and um
1: <laughs> yes and also people get mad at me for saying that um so yeah I mean it's it's one of those things where you know whenever you have this whenever there's an like an erosion of consensus or erosion of sort of social cohesion these sort of issues of the sort of constructedness of data or the constructedness of evidence, the social construction of facts, you know, the politics of knowledge and things like that become very clear and weaponized. You know, you're right that this has always been the case, but what's different, I think, is that there used to be a little more, (coughs) uh, you know, social cohesion around what is evidence, what we will, you know, accept and not accept, um, and what types of Facts are useful to us as a collective, you know, whether that's, you know, a global collective or, you know, a local collective or whatever, what types of things will help us live in the world more easily, right? And we're seeing, you know, a real disruption in that cohesion. And that's sort of, you know, part and parcel of, of where we're at right now, uh, I think, politically and especially with regard to our um, understanding of evidence. I think, I do think if like there was more transparency around the ways around data and, you know, data collection and, you know, whose interests it serves and whatnot, uh, it might be a little easier to sort of bridge a lot of these arguments in some cases, but obviously not in others, right? So I, you know, I don't have a great answer. This, this is always a question that I sort of, I mean, I don't, dread necessarily but you know I
0: don't have a great answer for this. Well I guess I'm just thinking of even you know when you hear something in the news or even not to I don't know how quickly we're going to turn this around so we might have to scrap this but even today right like oh Trump has COVID right there are already many people online who do not believe that he does. There are, yeah. all, You know what I mean like there's everybody it seems like is just going to decide for themselves what how much truth they accept in and whatever thing they heard and it's hard for me to imagine that any evidence that was offered to to confirm something one way or the other ultimately might not matter um yeah is that your sense as well
1: yeah i mean that's the thing when i'm talking about consensus it's like uh, we live in an era of such political divisiveness for a number of reasons some of which you know obviously it was already there but it's It's getting fomented and whipped up by, you know, our lives being lived on social media and our access to the Internet, which is full of incorrect and inappropriate information. (laughs) And so, you know, you can basically find, you know, hard facts, quote unquote, to support any any sort of perspective that you may have. Right. In terms of, you know, psychologizing that, I think that that to some degree has always been true, but not everybody's always had a mouthpiece. Um, and that sort of divisiveness hasn't always been, you know, intentionally sown for the profit motives of the platform with which these points yeah. are communicated.
2: Yeah. That's, that's what I was just about to bring up was the profit motive. Like we have a zillion people with mouthpieces and that in and of itself is not bad. It's probably good to have more people have more ways to communicate and, and like make their voices heard, but you have platforms that are, Incentivizing certain kinds of communication and like the sort of politics and economics of virality doesn't really privilege fact at all.
1: <laughs> yeah. And like, there have been studies on this, right? Like there was a study in 2018 at MIT that, you know, proved this theory, right? Like facts and, you know, true evidence does not spread as quickly as false and inflammatory and novel evidence.
2: Yeah, I saw a really like just banal example of this today on the Trump COVID topic where someone from the UK, I want to say like (laughs) me being a U.S. nationalist, uh, like kind of condescending to Americans, like don't get excited that Trump is finally experiencing the disease that he's been sort of poo-pooing for six, seven months, because the same thing happened to Boris Johnson, and he got a lot more popular in the UK. And it, this got like 50k retweets, it was like very much like setting the tone of the conversation, like, wait, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think of this as like a politically valuable moment for people who oppose the president. And and then, like, I saw multiple people using polling data to show that like, those increases in popularity had nothing to do with, like, they they predated when Johnson got COVID and like his popularity has declined like very steadily since then. It just seems like this happens all the time and the the false information, as you were saying, like spreads so quickly and none of the corrections spread at all. Like you're you're extremely lucky if you see the correction. <laughs> There's not really a question there.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, I well, I, I have a question that's bouncing off of that. And this is this is more of a lighthearted one, which is uh because I, there seems to be this paradox of you know being online, yeah. As as you were saying, you know our lives sort of increasingly lived on social media, and just with access to all of this information, it seems like at once we have access to a a, a just a plethora of bad information or poorly contextualized information but at the same time we also have an amazing tool at our fingertips to contextualize all of those things that were now the extent to which any of us actually does that and looks you know does sort of looks for counter stories to our our pre-existing biases is another question but i guess uh, to that end Again, a lighthearted question on the basis of this. Given all that we've talked about with the uh, data evidence and the sort of like public infrastructures of, you know, data collection that are set up, is it a good idea to log off? <laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, I think <laughs> I mentioned it earlier and I think, yeah, it probably is not a bad idea to log off or at least, you know, sort of step back and reconsider. You know, I think a lot of the time whenever people are engaging online, especially as, you know, the most inflammatory, you know, stuff is the stuff that we see more often, and that we, you know, remember, and it sort of is a, what do I want to say, what do they say, Thorn in your side a stone in your craw, um, yeah. <laughs> about it, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you just get whipped up, and, I think stepping back and thinking about like, what, what kind of role do you want technology to play in your life? Like, do you want it to be some like an argument machine? Or do you want it to be something that is you know a little different something that maybe you know is more in tune with some type of world that you might have i think everybody should look into alternative platforms and think more critically about platform cooperatives uh, i'm doing i'm doing some work right now looking into public utility cooperatives, because I'm now stationed in the Midwest for a number of reasons where public utility cooperatives are just sort of, you know, it's it's seen as normal and natural, and how these might inform the ways in which we think about social media, technology, etc. But, you know, I, I've said it, I think I've said it before in this interview, and I, you know, say it all the time, it's just that, you know, we just because this is the world that we've been given doesn't mean this is the world that we have to live with, right? Like there, there are ways that exist to sort of live outside of, you know, what we've been given and what is sort of pressed upon us by market-driven concerns. So I encourage everyone to, you know, log off or log, <laughs> into, different, log into different platforms that you might be able to, to use in ways that are more beneficial to you in the way that you want to live your life.
3: Absolutely. We'll put some links to those resources in our show description as well. That kind of uh, exhausted our list of questions. Uh, did I, Did either of you have any uh, any other points to take us out on? Or
2: I would just say thanks for all those suggestions that you just gave, and and for the work that you've done on like imagining these alternatives. It's it's a bleak topic, but just seeing how people get involved in uh, using data for social justice is inspiring on its own we have a plethora of tools that are at our disposal and we need to like think about a diversity rather than just sort of the one or two that are foisted upon us, as you said, by market forces. So I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Another thing I've been thinking about a lot is, so I teach uh, like, you know, ethics in, you know, university. And so I teach, you know, incoming, you know, engineers, data scientists And a big thing I try to impress upon them is that you have a right to refuse to do something, especially, you know, especially if you don't think it's appropriate. Um, And so I think a lot of what my work focuses on or sort of uh, my teaching focuses on is just, you know, sort of training students to understand, you know, what these varying sort of issues are at present and not just teach them about, you know, analytical philosophy and, you know, applying, uh, you know, use cases to, you know, outdated theorems, but to, you know, really think about the ways that the, the ways that the technologies that they build can be used against people. And that if it's going to be something that is deployed on society, they should think long and hard about the ways in which this is going to happen. And I have, you know, there are tons of examples of people from industry who exercise their right to refuse and it works, works time and time again, you know, they're, examples of people who collectivize in their workplaces in, uh, you know, in the tech industry, and it works to some degree. And so I try to bring these narratives to light to sort of help them understand tactics uh, to engage with this type of work, you know, from the inside, if you know, because that's what they've already decided that they want to do. Yeah, I think, you know, we have to work at this problem in a number of ways. Individuals and The ways that we engage with social media, you know, the ways that we develop collectives around, you know, technology or information to bring about the sort of collective vision of the future that we all might want. Uh, That's one way to do it. You know, we can press upon our politicians. We can press upon our, you know, institutions and various industries. But I think that, you know, nothing's going to be changed until we sort of exhaust all avenues (laughs) a lot of work a lot of work ahead a lot of work <laughs> nothing nothing good is ever easy that's what i right. say you know mm-hmm.
3: Well said. Well, I think that kind of gives us a nice place to wrap up here. So, thank you, Britt. This has been a really, really engaging and insightful conversation, and I think I think you've given us a lot of really important avenues for not only understanding data from a critical perspective, but also some uh, some ideas for what we can actually do in our in our everyday lives and how to better think about these structures that produce these data. So, uh, before we go, are are is there anything any upcoming projects or any new work uh, that you would like to plug? Get this point or any place where you would like to direct people to find more find out more about your work
1: uh yeah you can go to my website brit-paris.net um i try to keep everything that i'm you know working on updated there i'm trying to get a project off the ground about looking at how courts have gone to video conferencing and the ways in which that is a problem (laughs) but it's been really hard for me to get um, access so Hopefully, I'll I'll get something out on that. It may be, you know, the types of data I'm able to get, that's what's, you know, in question right now. But it's something that I'm really sort of uh, hyper-focused on at present.
3: Great. Well, we wish you all the best of luck in the future. And from all of us here at Reverb, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you to Dr. Britt Paris. And until next time, we will talk to you all
2: later. Bye. Thanks.
3: Our show today was produced by Sophie Wadzak. Calvin Pollock, and Alex Helberg, with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producer at large is Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. And tell a friend about us. We
1: sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners.
3: Thanks so much for tuning in.